Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. Got to point out that I often have the worst of memories, and so someone reminded me that... Is she hiding again? I know she was here. Did she run out? Okay, she's in the back. That last week we pointed out that Geneva had a birthday, but she wasn't here. And I said we would get her this week, and I forgot. So I'm going to ask everyone to stand and just turn towards Geneva and just stretch your hand. You can hop on a chair if you want to, Geneva. Or, or on the table, that would make a great picture for the family album. <laughs> All right. So everyone, who's? Oh, Mrs. Wagner's birthday. Helen's as well. So whoever you're close to, stretch your hands out toward Helen and Geneva and join me and wishing them a happy birthday ready. Amen. All right. All right. You may be seated. Now. I don't care what anyone says. I think a picture of Helen and Geneva dancing on the tabletop would be great for our website. It's just my opinion. But you know what? I think we got enough people that say that would be a great picture that we can make that happen. We can make that happen. Okay. So um, this week. We are kicking off a new series uh, that I believe is going to make a huge difference uh, in people's lives because there's a lot of conflict. Um, Obviously, you can look on the news and and wherever and see that, you know, people are in conflict in the church. People are leaving the churches, the groups, they're called. And and, uh, one of the main reasons that I keep seeing on the Internet is people keep saying, well, I don't know that I can experience God there. And I think it's the misunderstanding of what the church is that leads to that. But also there's a misunderstanding of several things. There's a misunderstanding of of like, who is Jesus? Because there's some people that say, well, Jesus isn't really God. Some denominations say that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. There are some people that say that Jesus is the archangel Michael, which is not the case. And there's some people that say, well, he was just a man. Uh, uh, The Bible says he was fully God and fully man. And there's all kind of confusion over that. Uh, There's some confusion over what Jesus actually said. Was it stuff that we're supposed to take literally? Or was it stuff that only applied to people back then? And then there's confusion over actually what is the gospel, this word gospel. Now, if you've heard, how many you've heard that term before, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, the gospel, literally, uh, it's a Greek word, uh, and it's the Greek, euangelion, and it translates to a reward for good tidings or good tidings, which we have translate, transliterated into the English phrase, the good news. Uh, so when we see and talk about the gospels, the four gospels, we say those are the four books of Good news, and we say the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to die for us. And uh, that's where the confusion lies, because some people say, well, the gospel is only this, the good news is only this. The gospel is only this, or the gospel is only that. Now, the gospel is, I mean, at its basest understanding, translates into two things. 
because it it's really applies to what Jesus said. Uh, the Bible, we've kind of said this whole thing is the good news, is the gospel, because from beginning to end, it talks and speaks about Jesus. But it really boils down to two things. If there are people who don't know Jesus Christ, then the gospel is, here is what Jesus wants to say to you. I mean, that's, that's in essence. If it's what Jesus said, then, and you're someone who doesn't know Christ, here is what Jesus wants to say to you, okay? Now, if you're someone who does know Christ, here is what Jesus wants you to tell others about him. The good news, when you go share the gospel, what you tell others about him. Now, it, here's the thing. Um, just to ensure that we're not confused, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the four gospels, what they're called, uh, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to mesh them together, just for the sake of time, and go through chronologically and look at what did Jesus say to the people that didn't know him and to the people that did know him, you know, the disciples and the apostles, what did he tell them or what does he reveal to them to say, go tell others this, go tell others that. Because that's, that's in essence the gospel. Now, when you look at Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, uh, you're looking at four people who documented either their firsthand witnessing, I, I saw this, I was right there, I heard what he said, I lived with him, whatever. Or in the case of Luke, you're looking at someone who went back and talked to firsthand witnesses because he wanted to know what was said. But you're also getting each person's different perspective on the exact same thing. So, for example, if Christy and I, uh, let's say if we had gone to a party yesterday, which we didn't because she was working and I was watching like cartoons, but if we had gone to a um, party yesterday and, and today someone would say, hey, so how was the party? She would be able to, you know, probably because of who she is, she would tell you, oh, they had great decorations this way. And if there were kids there, because she likes kids, she would be able to say they had these type of activities for the kids. And she's not probably the biggest fan of music, so she would either probably say, I didn't understand any of the music, I wasn't familiar with it, or they played a few songs that I was used to listening to from high school or back in the day or whatever. And she would tell you that's her perspective. And if you said, well, Floyd, how would you like the party? How was it? I would tell you what I ate. That's about it. That's, that's about all I would have. Here's what I ate. Probably wouldn't remember what the party was for, who threw it, or even whose house it was. But I'd be able to tell you what kind of meat we ate and what kind of pie if they had it. That's probably about as far as the same thing, two different perspectives. But both true firsthand accounts of here's what happened. And that's what you have when you, have, when you look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to mesh those together, all four of them, and go through chronologically. Uh, and if you have a Bible right now, just to give you a little bit of background, if you have a Bible, pull it out and open it up to the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. All right? So here's what I need you to do, though. Once you turn to Matthew, I need you to turn back to the left a page or two and go to the book of Malachi. Now, between the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, just hold your finger there for a minute because I, I kind of want to give you some background on where we're going and why the gospel was kind of relevant to these people. 
All right, so from, from starting from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Malachi, God was revealing himself throughout the entire Old Testament, okay? Um, kind of like over and over and over and over again. If you're a parent and you have the kid who stands there and he pokes you and he's like, mommy, 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 mommy. That's pretty much what you see throughout the Old Testament. Over and over, it reveals Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, it's just not as annoying as the kid that's poking you. But, but time and time again, the people in the Old Testament were rebellious to God's word. They didn't listen. They didn't obey. And they were disobedient. And so when you get to the book of Malachi, um, what you're seeing in the book of Malachi, before you get to Matthew, all right, there's like 400 years in between those two books. What uh, theologians call the silent years because there was no revelation from God between Malachi, which is like 425-ish B.C., and Matthew, which covers the beginning of the New Testament. All right? So when you look at the book of Malachi, and we're not going to go into that book, but I, I want to give you some background. You're looking at a people who were still rebellious to God, okay? Uh, they had been in captivity. They had went to Babylon, and the kingdom had fallen. The land that they told was going to be theirs, taken away from them. They were under Persian rule, and then, you know, God graciously allowed them to go back into their land, but they were still under Persian rule. They were rebellious to God, and then they were also without hope because they were like, look, all throughout our Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, all throughout it, there's this promise of Jesus, this Messiah, Jesus, this Messiah, Jesus, this Messiah, this guy who's going to come. And we've been conquered. We've been taken captive. We've become back into our own land. Now we're under another government rule. Where is this king, this Messiah, that's supposed to come? So they were losing hope. All right. Now, here's a question. How many of you have ever felt under pressure and thought, when is God going to show up? Right? There's so much going on where, okay, this and now this and now this and now this. It's like a domino effect, except instead of falling down, they're falling on you one after the other, and you're like, where in the heck is God? Now, that's, that's how they felt, okay? Now, even though uh, this book of Malachi is about 425-ish B.C. or so, the events that happened to the nation of Israel continued. The people, even though there's this quiet time, between 425 and depending on, you know, how you do the timeline, either 0 A.D. or 4 A.D., based on when you do it, uh, when Jesus is born, uh, there's a lot that still goes on. So what happens, I want to fill you in just a little bit on what happens, and bear with me. I know, like, the whole back youth back there, like, seriously, a history lesson on Sunday. Just bear with me, all right? It's, it's important, okay? So here's what happens. All right, uh, after um, they are under Persian rule, the people of Israel, because they are losing hope, begin to adopt some of the ideas of the culture that is around them. Now, they're in Israel, but they're under Persian rule. They have Persian kings, Persian leaders, Persian people, Persian culture, and they begin to adopt that and mix it with their beliefs. And they come up with this book called the Apocrypha. How many have heard of the Apocrypha. Okay. That's where it came from. If you read some of the books in there, there's a lot of Persian culture, Persian mythology that gets mixed into biblical, biblical culture, biblical theology. And in fact, some of the books of the Bible 
there are new books that are added on of similar name, but that instead of having the Israel's culture or God's revelation to Israel, they have the Persian culture or Persian influence added to that book and expanded. Okay, so that's what happens. Now, those writings become a part of the Jewish culture. Uh, they get included into what is called the Septuagint, which is the, uh, is it Greek or Latin? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And although those writings are cultural, they're not necessarily divinely inspired. They're not revealed by God. And some of them, not all of them, some of them are immoral, not in a, like, mean way, but in a, they are in direct contrast, some of them, to God's moral law that he gave to the people of Israel. All right? So, how many of you have ever been, hopefully not in this church, but in churches or heard of churches that mix the culture, what's going on in the culture, with the word of God? That's what we see a lot of happening today. The culture says this is okay and this is okay and we should be doing this. And so it comes into the church and it gets accepted as part of the word of God when in essence it's not. All right. So then here's what happens. The Persian Empire falls and they come under the Greek Empire. This is Israel, Palestine. Comes under the Greek Empire. Now the Greeks are very thoughtful, intelligent philosophical people so some of that greek culture gets mixed into the jewish culture as well all right and then uh the greeks fall and then they come under the roman empire which is what they're under when we see the new testament come into play all right during the time the early time probably uh maybe i want to say 150 bc um they come under uh what is called Herodian rule. The Romans take one of the Herods. There's this Herod dynasty, and there's a lot of Herods. You'll see the name several times in the Bible, and they're not all the same guy. They, under the Herodian dynasty, and the Jewish people rebel because the Herods weren't really fully Jewish, and they were kind of giving into the Romans so that they could be in power. And the Jewish people rebel. They fight. There's fighting going on. There's like skirmishes being smashed. And there's so much religious and political tension. Now, how many people are familiar with a culture where religion and politics don't really mesh that well? I mean, we can understand that, all right? During this time, okay, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting to Matthew, but during this time, there are two dominant uh, organizations that come up and take precedence in leading the nation of Israel, although they're still under the Roman Empire, all right? Uh, and those are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you guys have read that in the, in, the Old Test- in the New Testament. Okay, now the Pharisees, they were what's called masters of the oral tradition. They took God's law, right? They said, this is important. But they looked and said, the reason why we are under Roman rule, why we went into captivity, All our problems come because we were not obeying God's law. So they took God's law and they came up with what they called traditions, basically a lot of legalistic rules, and said, we have to keep these legalistic rules in order to be truthful to God's law. So there were 613, uh, I believe, um, Levitical laws that that God had laid down that included a moral code, a dietary code, and and how we live with one another. And they added all these things that you must do in addition to that. 
that God didn't say you must do. Now, let me ask this. How many people have ever heard of churches being extremely legalistic? And, and some of the older, older people may remember churches that said, you can't go to the movies. The word movie is not in the Bible. And I blew that out the water. Anyway, uh, you can't dance. Uh, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, all these things that aren't in the Bible, but there are lots of traditions that were implemented in order to try to stay true to God's word. Now, that's what happened with uh, the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the intelligent thinkers, philosophical people who said, hey, those traditions are not as important as God's law. But, Since we're smart, philosophical people, we have reinterpreted God's law, and here's what it really says. Now, ask yourself this. How many people have heard of churches that are taking God's word and reinterpreting it to say whatever they want to say? It happens every day, sadly, in the church, all right? Now, for you, this may seem a little weird. Why are they, you know, these two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, why are people kind of obeying and following these two dominant cultures. Now, we are familiar with having two dominant organizations within our culture that the people follow, either Democrats or Republicans. For some reason, uh, most of our culture, not all, most of our culture, and for a long time have said, it's either this way or that way. There is no other way. Those are the only two things, and anything else that has tried to rise up hasn't, kind of taken, hasn't been accepted. And I, I think I've said this before, that a friend of mine even started his own political party, which back, you know, when I first knew him, there were like 10 people. Um, and it would jump from 9 to 10, depending on what I heard him say. I would say, yes, I'm in, or no, I'm out, so 9 or 10. Now it's like several thousand people, and it's kind of like nationwide. I won't tell you the name of the party, because I'm still trying to keep myself separated from that as a registered independent. But um, actually, it's called the Falcon Party, so you can go look it up, Google it if you want. Uh, It's been around for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years now. Uh, Go look it up. It's got a few thousand people. Um, I also have a really cool T-shirt. I almost joined just for the T-shirt, but I did not. Okay, so this is why they needed good news, because everyone was kind of losing sight of this, and the culture had determined what they listened to, what they obeyed, and what they did. And this, for them as a whole, was no longer relevant. And that's what people say today. They look at the Word of God and say, well, I don't need this because it's not relevant. And so Jesus shows up to live out and show them how relevant it truly is if they would get rid of their traditions and just adhere to God's Word. And if they would not try to reinterpret God's word, but just try to understand, let God's revelation be clear. All right, so if you um, look at, when you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they start off by telling us, each one starts off by telling us who God is, okay? Now, Matthew starts off by giving the genealogy of Jesus Christ from his adopted father, so to speak, Joseph, because Joseph wasn't his birth father. So Matthew starts off, when you look at the book of Matthew, it starts off, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Mark doesn't give the genealogy. Mark starts off from the start of his ministry. From Mark's perspective, that's the most important thing, the start of his ministry. Luke gives 
not at the beginning, but I think it's chapter two or three, the genealogy, but from the perspective of Mary. And both Matthew and Luke show that either because he was the son of Joseph, he was he was the Messiah. He was heir to the throne of David, the king of Israel, or because he was the biological son of Mary, he was also heir to the throne. Either way, he had a rightful claim to the throne to be king. And then John, he steps back way before his birth and says, in the beginning was the word. And he tells us that, hey, even before he was born on earth, he has a right to rule because he is God. And that's the beginning that he gives us, all right? So now, now that we kind of understand the revelation that they're trying to bring of the good news to this culture and to this society and to us, uh, turn to the book of Luke, because that's where we're going to jump off, because that's, there we go. That's the first time that we see, I was going to say here, but we see Jesus speaking to us and to humanity. All right, so in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 41, now this is the first time that we have an interaction with Jesus speaking. He's a 12-year-old child, all right? And verse 41, it says, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, so he was a middle schooler at this time, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. And I've said before that people give uh, Joseph and Mary a lot of flack because how could you not know that your kid didn't come with you? And if you've ever been to a Pirates game and had to walk across the, excuse me, walk across the bridge and you see the throngs of people walking. Now think about it. Today, you're going to have like, if not a leash, a strap, a handhold or eyesight on your kid. But back then, and again, some of the older people can remember a day when didn't lock your doors. There weren't people trying to hurt your children. Everyone knew everyone. And this is a group of family and relatives, even, the, even if it's like twice or three times removed, all related. And they all had come to worship God, and now they're all going back home from worshiping God. So in, if you can imagine walking across the bridge after the game, if that's all your family and friends uh, and, and your kids running up and down, playing and they're running as they walk across the bridge, that's the kind of, of traveling that they were doing. And there was no reason for them to believe that anyone was out to hurt their child and anyone was out to do anything wrong to their child. And, you know, no one was trying to, like, Skype in with their child and send them, like, weird messages and all that kind of stuff. So they, they, they don't deserve the, the flack that... Everyone gives them. All right, verse 44. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. So it was a day before they realized, hey, you know, uh, uh, where's Jesus? Where's, where's he at? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, this is, this is important because, uh, again, when people give them flack, they're like, how could you miss your child for like three days? And it wasn't three days. It was a day. Then they went to look for them. But that meant, all right, that for at least a day or two, Jesus was just sitting in the temple, interacting with, with, with the, if to put it in our perspective, he was sitting in church on the day the church was closed, talking with the pastors the deacons, 
the elders, the ministers, just sharing revelation about God, asking them questions and answering their questions. That's what he was doing for at least a minimum of a day, possibly for two. Verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So they weren't like, you know, wayward parents. They were, once they realized he wasn't among family, they began looking for him. This is, this is key. Verse, <coughs> excuse me, verse 49. This is Jesus. This is the first thing that we see him saying in the New Testament in the Bible. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I, and underline this, had to be in my father's house? It's not like I wanted to be. It's not like I could have been somewhere else. He said, I had to be in my father's house. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And I'm going to explain to you what he was saying to them in a minute. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and underlined this and was obedient to them. He was obedient to his earthly parents. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, this is, this is important because this is the gospel. This is the good news. Because from Jesus' perspective, he was fulfilling because he was God in the flesh. And there are some people that argue and say that, well, he couldn't have known that he was God until he was older. But apparently, he's at the age of 12 saying, I knew I had to be, I had to be in my father's house. But as a human, fully man, fully God and fully man, as a little boy, listen up, tech team, he said, I had to be obedient. The Bible tells us he was obedient to his mother and his father. Okay, now this is, this is crucial because as God, fully God, he had to do what God sent him to do. I am here because I have a purpose to fulfill. God didn't send me just to, you know, go home and, and, and you know, live a leave it to beaver life. I have stuff to do. I have a mission and a purpose. I know some of you don't know who leave it to beaver is. Just Google it. But I have a mission and a purpose. I watch way too much television. I have a mission and a purpose. Okay. On the other hand, as a fully man, he had to be obedient to his parents he had homework, probably. Granted, probably a lot easier for him to do than most of us. He had responsibilities. He probably had chores because they probably, hey, your turn to, you know, milk the cows or take out the water or cut the grass. Or they had goats, which is the best way to cut the grass, and I'm leaning towards that for the church. Anyway, um, so he had responsibilities and things that he had to do. And what's so cool, so cool is that the gospel, the good news is that as fully God, he had a purpose for humanity. But as fully man, he could identify with humanity. And here's what, here's, here's what it says in the book of Hebrews. And I think we touched on this when we went through uh, the book of Hebrews. Verse two, Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, it says, so it is evident that it was essential that he, meaning Jesus Christ, be made like his brethren in every respect in order that he might become a merciful, sympathetic, 
and faithful high priest in the things related to God to make atonement and propitiation for the people's sins. Jesus Christ had to be made like his brethren in every respect. He had to go through the struggles that you went through. He had to have people that rejected him, and we know all his disciples ended up rejecting him. He had to have probably kids that made fun of him. He had to feel the displeasure of not fitting in. He had to feel anger. He had to feel loss. He, had, he, he lost, even though it wasn't his father. Uh, his father, most theologians believe, Joseph, who was his father, died before he was killed on the cross. So even though it was his stepfather, he had to feel that loss. And then as God, fully resurrected as God, he had to watch his human mother die. He had to feel all the things that we felt, every respect, so that he might become a merciful, pour out mercy on us, but also sympathetic. He can sympathize with our pain, our anguish, our frustrations, everything that we go through. In order to make atonement and propitiation uh, for people. Now, those words atonement and propitiation almost mean the same thing. It's basically, um, I think in the King James, it says reconciliation. It basically means in order to make things right. Because here's, here's, here's the reality. We call him the Savior. But if you think about this, if you are ever like near a lake or a pool and you see someone drowning, in order to save them, you have to get into the pool. In order to save us, he had to become like us. And from his very youth, we see the elements of him being obedient to God because he's fully God. And we see him being obedient to his parents because he is fully man. Now, to those who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is, this is the gospel. This is, this is what Jesus would say. For those people that say, well, I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Because he became like us, he knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows your hurts. He knows who left you. He knows who talks about you. He knows sometimes you don't think that much of yourself. He knows your, 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 your pain medically and physically within your body because he felt more pain than a lot of us can imagine. He knows what it's like to have friends be with you one minute and abandon you the next minute. He knows what it's like to have family members not believe in you because at one point, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, his family members tried to have him what we would call like uh, uh, committed to a mental institution because they thought he was insane. He knows what it's like to have your family kind of like not put their faith and trust in your dreams, your vision, and the path you're on. To those people that don't know Christ, he says, hey, I know that. I can sympathize with that. And I died so that you don't have to bear the weight of all that on your own. That's the good news. That's the gospel that he shares with all those people who say, well, I don't know God. But he says, I know you. I know what you're going through. And I don't want you to go through it alone so much so that I died to help lift that weight off you. Now, for those people who say that we do know Christ, here's what he wants us to tell others about him. And I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time. 
Because it's crucial when we talk to other people, what's the message that the gospel that God wants to communicate through us to others? What does God, he wants us to tell them that, hey, that pain that they have, that hurting that they're feeling, that emptiness in their heart, they don't have to go through that. We, we, have, we have the authority that God gives us to tell them that they don't have to go through that alone. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to just, um, just worship God through song. God, I pray for those of us that are here that say that maybe we thought we knew you, or maybe we followed your word, or maybe we followed our parents into a building called the church, and we thought that that's what made us followers of Jesus Christ, and now we know that that's not it. For those people that say they don't have a relationship, God, I pray that, I pray that they would understand that all the pain, all the hurt, all the anguish, all the loneliness can be taken away because you shed your blood on the cross and that we have the opportunity to enter in into a relationship, not just a management or infrastructure, but a relationship with the creator of the universe because you shed your blood for us. And to those of us who say, yeah, we do know God, God, I pray that you would put it on our hearts to tell others that they don't have to bear their pain, their loneliness, that there is nothing that's going to fill the emptiness that they're feeling in their hearts except the amazing, merciful love of Jesus Christ. Before we sing the next song, first, pray for me. Okay, I don't know where it went. Just pray for me. But there's something I want to point out to you too, and it's, it's, it's that there are so many people in our culture today that are looking for, really looking for, you know, can I find God? And the sad part is some people are leaving the churches to say, can I find God? And they're finding other ways and venues to try to reach God, and they're trying to work their way into his good graces or reinterpret his word like we talked about so that what they're doing is acceptable to him, and they say, well, I'm already in his good graces. And one of the reasons, and I'm not just doing this to plug the shirt, but one of the reasons why this verse is so powerful is because it points out that salvation is found in no one else. There's no other way to get to God. There is only one name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And part of what we do as the church is we by the way we live our lives, by the way we share the love of Christ, by the way we show the love of Christ to other people, we get the joy of sharing that with them. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads one more time before we sing this next song. God, we pray that we would be living vessels that show to those people that are looking for ways to find you and experience you that you are already here and you've already showed us the way to connect with you. And it's not through our works. It's not through us breaking down your word so that we can apply it to the things that we do in our lives that would make them acceptable in your sight. It's by the amazing love that you poured out on us when you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us. 
God, we pray that we would be people who share and show that love to others. Amen. God, we know that you loved us enough to die for us and that your death on the cross paid the penalty for our sins and moved us from a place of being separated from you to being united in you. And we celebrate that. We celebrate that with every fiber of our being. And we give you praise and glory and honor. And all God's people said, amen. Amen, amen. amen. Thank you guys. Pray that you have an awesome, blessed rest of your Sunday. God bless and see you next week.